Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 79, A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether or not it is required reading. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and as always, I am joined by my lovely co-host, who neither of us probably really would ever want to be a character in this book, but we both, I think, both enjoy our fair share of punk rock, so that's awesome. It's Stella. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm trying to think which character is, like, the most redeeming, which I, I'm sure we will get to. Maybe yeah. it's Lulu. <laughs> Lulu, because we always see Lulu as, like, a child, yeah. and, then and then she's kind like, of an adjusted adult. But when she was Benny, and that seems like a poor decision, but I don't know. Yeah. We'll get into all that. Yeah, It's funny how you always say, I'm always joined by, wouldn't that be terrible if one episode, I'm not there, and either you're by yourself, or someone else has joined you? If, if, I'm, by, if I'm not with <laughs> you, that means Shag has somehow forced his way Whoa. onto the show. Okay. <laughs> or Alan has made you the character in a Hardy novel. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, and then you're just talking about the terrible way that I died. <laughs> my gosh. Hey, I'm making it okay. We're close yeah. to, well, I guess, by the time this drops, we're, we're out. Mm-hmm. We're on, on summer break. Um, but both of us, yeah, we're just talking before we hit record that it's we're nearly at the finish line. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, we've got about, th- as of this, when we're recording this, I think we've got about three weeks left. So we are getting there. Yeah. I'm still kind of have my sanity in my brain, although I'm completely scatterbrained about some things. So um, there's just a lot, a lot of, a lot of things to juggle at the moment. But thankfully, um, knock wood, everything's healthy and okay. So. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we have a good book to get us through the trials and tribulations of our life. Yeah, we do. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. well, let's get there, I guess. Um, Yeah. So the book is called uh, Are You? No, wait, that's our last episode. Whoa. 
Tim, what's going on here? See, when we start late, you're off the rails. I know, I know. All right. So, yeah, the book is called <laughs> – my voice cracked. <sighs> and I hate editing episodes. All right. Um, the book is called A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Um, you know, we were, we we're going to talk about our history with the book, which is probably very, very short anyway for both of us. Um, but, like, you know, the book surrounds itself – in the music industry and specifically with punk rock um, or, or that the, the genre of punk rock. Um, so before I ask you about what your history with the book is, because I think it's pretty short, um, what's your history with punk? Do you have one? Do you enjoy it? Are you like, Tom, why the hell did you make me read this book? Because I hate this music too. Um, what, what do you, uh, what can you tell me? Um, do you have green spiky hair on the weekends or what? I would say I'm I'm trying to think if if this band is considered punk rock. Um, but Paramore, I would say, is as close as I'm maybe going to get. It. But I wonder if that's more like emo. You know, the 2000s where you mm. had it's the same. Um, it's the same flow chart, right? They all kind yeah, of yeah, it certainly feels the were, same. Yeah, exists within the same sort of. There's a Venn diagram. And and I think Paramore is probably somewhere in the overlapping part of the Venn diagram, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have um, Green Day. Would you consider that punk oh, rock? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so ba- like, I would say my high school time was very much um, filled with punk rock. Now, I leaned toward, I think, more pop. But as I've gotten older, I actually lean more towards uh, indie rock and rock in general. So no, this wasn't this wasn't a a problem to read at all. And I had read um, actually on the Rory Gilmore's list. Not only did I have well, I don't think the Acid Kool-Aid test actually had anything to do with punk rock, but there was like a Please Kill Me, the uncensored history of punk rock that which is, is really interesting that's was, on my to read list yeah I, I think that you will it's a good companion but yeah, you with this yeah. yeah so i learned of course i think more about the the culture surrounding it and and their lifestyles and things so i wasn't as shocked by what was going because this is actually relatively tame con- compared to yeah. that <laughs> uh unedited or unauthorized oral history but yeah i mean they would they live pretty hard. I guess just rock, any sort of genre with rock, those people are living pretty hard. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I have a Green Day was my entrance into punk rock. I, I've talked about this on other podcasts. I was talking about it most recently on my own show because I, we, me and uh, Ryan and Neil Daly did a two-parter about cover songs between Pop Culture Affidavit and Fire and Water Records. And I did talk about how, you know, Dookie – by Green Day is essentially the album that changed my life. And I did a whole episode of, of Pop Culture Affidavit on that like eight years ago. Uh, because up at that point, I was listening to a lot of rock and all, especially alternative and metal. And I listened to Green Day when I was 17 years old um, in 1994. And I was like, where has this been all of my life? And that led me back in time to the Ramones, to the Clash, eventually the Sex Pistols, um, and I've always enjoyed the genre. I these days I do tend to lean a little more, yeah, pop. Not really pop, like rock, more mainstream rock. Some a lot more folk than I used to listen to, and stuff, and and stuff classic rock as well. 
Um, but uh, I've read a couple of books. Uh, one one book I recommend if anybody can find a copy, it's out there. It's called Our Band Could Be Your Life by Ma- Michael Azarad, and it's about 80s indie rock and punk bands, uh, Black Flag, The Dead, not the Dead Kennedys, um, Circle Jerks, The Butthole Surfers, The Replacements, which is one of my favorite bands of all time, um, Fugazi, uh, The Dead Milkman, and, and, and a lot of these bands that were kind of like this underground hardcore scene about like how they came about and some of the stories that you have from there, too. And then if anybody ever wants to watch a really good documentary about punk, um, check out the first volume of Penelope Spheris' The Decline of Western Civilization. It's from about the early 1980s. Part one was about punk rock in L.A. Part two is about the uh, hair metal scene in L.A. in the late 80s. And then part three is what about what was called the gutter punk scene um, in the 90s. And then there is also, and I'm just going to keep recommending films so we don't have to talk about the book. Um, <laughs> the other movie I really would recommend for people who like 90s pop punk is called Turn It Around, the story of East Bay Punk. It's like a three or four hour documentary about the Oakland scene that birth Green Day and Operation Ivy and Rancid and, and those and those bands. So and uh, if you want to listen to some good pop punk, check out the band Gone Stereo. Uh, the because the guitarist is a friend of mine from when we were very little kids, Chris Lynham. He's an excellent he is an excellent ninth grade English teacher up on Long Island and he is an excellent punk guitarist so I want to plug his band so now that I've gotten all that out of the way I would assume your history of the book is the same as mine in that this is the first time either of us have ever read this yeah and I I didn't hear I had not heard of it Hmm. and I was trusting your guidance on this and I will, <laughs> I mean, we'll get Sorry. into what, 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 no, that's okay. We'll get into it, but I feel like this, I haven't done as much research background stuff with a book for this show in a while. Mm. Because I did have to go out of my way to, well, find a flow chart, yeah. uh, which you will be posting Through somewhere. The show notes, yes. Yes. Um, after I read a section, find a summary so I could check that I understood what actually happened in the section. Mm-hmm. And also, which I think we're going to get into, doing research on the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> so it's like all of this stuff that I'm like, I don't think I've worked as hard as I, you know, have for, uh, well, I guess except for, you know, you and I, obviously, when we're prepping, yeah. we have to do more work than the other. But yeah, so in a way that helped me appreciate it a bit more. But yes, first timer and hearing of it. And the author sounds really familiar, but I don't. Oh, someone, when I posted it, uh, one of my friends said that she read another book by mm. her and did not care for it. So maybe it's a bad track. Yeah, she's also a journalist, author. too, so you may have seen her um, byline here and there. Yeah. So, yeah, I um, <clears throat> this was on my to-read list, so I plucked it off of there. Because as, as you could tell from the, from the films and things I just talked about, I'm a big nerd when it comes to pop culture history, especially music and movies and, um, and comics, you know, like, so I, I love reading about the history of stuff and I like things that are, you know, fictionalized in that way. And I've read a couple of books where the centerpiece of the book was a band, for instance, um, like Grady Hendrix's, we sold our souls, which is a, is a fun rock horror novel. 
um, Hagen Kennedy's The X's, which was pretty good. And then um, so the idea I was like, so I read the back of this and I heard about it. I can't remember where I heard about it back when it was published. It might have been like Entertainment Weekly or um, well, the Washington Post or something. And and I heard really, really good things about it. It won the Pulitzer. And so it ended up on my like to do to read list. Right. And I got a copy um, a few months ago and decided, well, I was going to read this anyway. So that's where I pulled it from. And I thought, you know, considering what it was about, it might be a really interesting kind of look at, at a fictionalized punk band or something like that. So we'll have to see how this went. But yes, um, I appreciated the fact that you provided, you found a flow chart of who the characters are because this did need a flow chart. Spoilers. Yeah, I can't even, I think I just Google searched character map mm-hmm. because it was so, and <clears throat> there aren't many, no, you know, the other, only other novel, like just off the top of my head that would probably have a character map is War and Peace. Mm-hmm. And you're about to read a punk rock book, but that's what this novel is. It's like all these people are popping up. I'm like, well, I recognize that name, but I don't recall that relationship, um, which we'll get into. But it's just like because it interweaves so much, because it is not chronological. Once I found that little character map, I was like, oh, this makes better sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, let's get into the context of the book, the life history, the author. Um, the bio that I have is from the Pulitzer.org site because Jennifer Egan won the Pulitzer back in uh, 2011 for this. Uh, Jennifer Egan was born in Chicago, where her paternal grandfather was a police commander and bodyguard for President Truman during his visits to that city. She was raised in San Francisco and studied at the University of Pennsylvania and St. John's College, Cambridge in England. In those years as a student, she did a lot of traveling, often with a backpack. China, the former Soviet Union, Japan, and much of Europe, and those travels came became the basis for her first novel, The Invisible Circus, and her story collection, Emerald City. She came to New York in 1987 and worked on an array of wacky jobs while learning to write, catering at the World Trade Center, joining the word processing pool at a midtown law firm, serving as the private secretary for the Countess of Romanones, Romanones, an OSS spy turned Spanish countess by marriage, who wrote a series of bestsellers about her spying and experiences and famous friends. Egan has published short stories in many magazines, including The New Yorker, Harper's, Granta, and McSweeney's. Her first novel, The Invisible Circus, came out in 1995. It was released as a movie starring Cameron Diaz in 2001. Her second novel, Look at Me, was a National Book Award finalist in 2001. Her third, The Keep, was a national bestseller as well. She's also a journalist, and she has written many cover stories for the New York Times Magazine on topics ranging from young fashion models to the secret online lives of closeted gay teens. Her 2002 cover stories on homeless children received the Carol Cowell Journalism Award. Her 2008 story on bipolar children won an Outstanding Media Award for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two sons. The book was published in 2010. It garnered critical acclaim as well as awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. The Pulitzer Prize Board noted that the novel was, quote, an inventive investigation of growing up and growing old in the digital age, displaying a big-hearted curiosity about cultural change at warp speed. 
Can I interrupt you yeah. and say when I read that, because I screenshot that at work and sent it to you mm. via our work email. I don't know if you got it from there. When I read that, I was like, what novel did I read? <laughs> did you feel the same way? I was like, what? That's what the novel there's about? There's like little bits and pieces of like digital age stuff, but not until like the end when she projects into the future. And there's that one character who is like obsessed with email. Um, and I can't remember his, his name, um, who talks about how like everybody's going to going to be communicating through text and screens and stuff like that in the future. But I did not get that. What, what the Pulitzer prize board was saying from my reading either. So they're seeing something I didn't. And maybe that you didn't either. So, okay, I'm yeah. so glad. So in commenting on her Pulitzer, NPR critic Jonathan Bastian wrote that Egan is one of the most recent and successful examples of a trend that has been steadily sleep, seeping into the wor- world of contemporary literature. The unusual format of the novel taking place across multiple platforms has led some critics to label the novel post-postmodern. Uh, Many critics were impressed by Egan's experiments with structure, such as a section formatted like a PowerPoint printout. There's also a sequel to the book, by the way. It's called The Candy House, uh, which is published in 2022. I think one of the um, – it's a similar format to uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and the characters connect in some way, and that one of the characters – that guy who's like obsessed with email, who I can't remember his name is one of the kind of the, the anchor characters for it. So I think it, it might center around more less punk rock, more punk Silicon Valley or something. I don't know. I, I have no, I've never read it. Uh, Goon squad has also landed on, on a number of be- publications, best of, best of lists. It was picked up for a television series by HBO back in 2011, but that kind of just sat and died on the vine. Uh, however, earlier this year, 2023, A24 announced that it had optioned the rights to the book and as well as the sequel, The Candy House. And apparently they're in development into a television series with Olivia Wilde. Whether or not that will come to fruition um, in the near future anytime is up in the air, considering the current writer's strike and, mm-hmm. you know, there's announcements and there's actually putting these things in production. We know how Hollywood does have its production uh, development hell. So we'll see. We'll see if this comes out and whether or not it looks like it might be any good. So will you actually watch it? I don't know. Okay. So, um, so I, uh, can you remind, you sent me a, a link to a, uh, a summary, and it's not from Wikipedia, but I forgot to credit where it was. Do you remember where you got uh, that? I'm pretty sure it was Lit Lovers. Okay, yeah, that sounds familiar. So hopefully I got the source right. I apologize. But I am reading their summary, which is which is a bit long. But the, the, the novel is 13 chapters and two sections. There's section A and section B, which are supposed to represent the two sides of a record. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are 13 chapters. Each chapter stands as a self-contained story, but as a whole, the individual episodes create connections that form a cohesive narrative. The only book that I've ever read that I kind of equate this to, and once I was able to do that, I was able to follow it a little better, was Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, which is a which you couldn't read a number of the story, a number of the chapters in The Things They Carried as 
standalone stories, but they all have um, connecting, all the chapters have connecting characters, connecting themes, and so it kind of forms a a novel in in this sort of way. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit when we have our discussion because we can talk about what o- I can talk a little bit about, or we can talk a little bit about what O'Brien does as opposed to what Egan does, what works and what doesn't. So the stories as they appear as the novel, they don't follow a traditional chronology. Uh, they go back and forth through time. They seem to be connected by character. So like I said, in the show notes, we'll post a flow chart. But it seems that, and as I go through the the synopses of the different stories, you'll see that like one of the like sometimes somebody from a previous chapter is now the main character in this next story, and sometimes the sto- the connection from one story to the next is we're picking up a thread from one character and bringing them into the next story and hopping around. But the time goes from the 1970s to the 2020s, which then was the future. Because the book, the present day of the book would have been probably around like 2010. Yeah, so several characters appear in more than one story. Um, and through the way in which they appear at different points in time, you can pick up the narratives of their lives, especially the ones who are considered major characters in the novel. So the first story is called Found Objects. And we meet with one of two characters that we will Probably could, I don't want to say they're main characters. Maybe they're anchor characters is probably the best way to put it because when you put them on that flow chart, they're the big ones in the center and everything seems to evolve around them as far as the narrative is concerned. This uh, first anchor character is Sasha. When we see her, she meets with her therapist, Kaz, with whom she is working to overcome kleptomania. She recounts the date she went on with a man named Alex during which she stole a woman's wallet in the restaurant bathroom. Uh, after a brief confrontation with that woman, Sasha returns the wallet and she admits she has a problem. Afterwards, Sasha and Alex return to her apartment and they have sex. Alex is smitten by the fact that Sasha has a bathtub in her kitchen in her New York apartment and takes a bath. And during that, Sasha goes through Alex's wallet. She finds a piece of paper that says, I believe in you. She steals the paper and puts the wallet back before he returns. Story number two is called The Gold Cure. This introduces our second anchor character. This is Benny Salazar, a divorced record executive in his mid-40s who struggles with anxiety and sexual impotency. He sprinkles gold flakes into his coffee to combat his sexual dysfunction. Benny and his son Christopher meet Sasha. Now, Sasha, from our previous story, is Benny's assistant. Um, so they meet at the home of one of the bands that was signed to his record label. They're not selling albums, but as they play some music for Benny, he begins to feel sexually aroused by the music. His arousal, however, suddenly escapes him as a flood of shameful memories strikes him. He runs out of the house. Afterward, Benny dumps Christopher off at his mother's house and drives Sasha home. As Benny drops Sasha off at her building, he tells her about his attraction to her, but she stops him saying, we need each other, and then she goes home. The next story is called Ask Me If I Care. We leap back to 1979. and We see Rhea, an insecure punk rocker with green hair, who's telling this story. She feels undesirable and not punk enough because she has freckles. Rhea's friend Jocelyn begins sleeping with Lou, who is a powerful record executive and a much older man. So, like, kind of, I'm picturing a really just disgusting 70s sleazeball, right? She convinces Lou to come see Benny Salazar and Scotty Hausman's band, The Flaming Dildos, 
at the concert, the, I know, right? <laughs> that that sounds like a band that somebody thought sounded punk, right? <laughs> like, you know, it sounds yeah, punk, I huh? guess if maybe if she was like, well, what's the opposite of pussy riot? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> at the concert, Jocelyn gives Lou oral sex as the band plays. Lou has his arm around Rhea, and Rhea feels like she's part of the sexual act in a way that disturbs her. After the concert's over, they go to Lou's house. Rhea and Lou share a conversation on the balcony, which Rhea scolds him for sleeping with Jocelyn, who is underage. Lou gets a kick out of her belligerence and tells her never to change. Two weeks later, Jocelyn runs away with Lou, but he promises to bring her home when he returns to San Francisco. We follow Lou into the next story, and that is called Safari. Lou, two of his children, and his new girlfriend, Mindy, go out on an African safari. I can't tell if this takes place before or after the third the story we just heard about i think this is supposed to take place earlier in the 70s but i guess it doesn't really matter but isn't that his third wife yeah i couldn't i honestly couldn't tell (laughs) so i think that it has to be after because that's his final wife because he has like four other children before he marries mindy okay my bad anyway it, it takes place in an African safari. They're joined by a cast of other characters. This includes Kronos, who's the guitarist of a popular band, and Albert, their tour guide. Uh, during the story, Mindy, the girlfriend, feels tension with Lou's children that he already has. We have Charlie and Rolf. Uh, they miss their mother. And out on the safari, a lion attacks Kronos because Kronos just basically walks up to it when they're watching it from afar. Albert saves him, though, by shooting and killing the lion. Later, Mindy sleeps with Albert. When Lou realizes that something is going on between Mindy and Albert, he tells Rolf that all women are the C-word. I'm not going to say it on the air. Rolf condemns his father's reaction, but Lou, a fiercely competitive man, feels a newfound desire to conquer Mindy. Later that night, Rolf and Charlie dance together in the hotel restaurant, which is a moment of connection they have not experienced yet on the trip. In this moment, the narrative leaps forward, revealing the future. Mindy will marry Lou, and they will have two children together. After they divorce, she will work as a travel agent and as she raises their children and will later to go on to continue her Ph.D. Charlie will go on to join a cult in Mexico. Rolf will become estranged from his father and commit suicide at the age of 28. The narrative jumps forward a quarter century for the next story called You, parentheses, plural, Jocelyn narrates, and she and Rhea have returned to Lou's house after his health has failed. In the years since the story we last saw them in, which was Ask Me If I Care, Jocelyn has been in and out of rehab. Rhea has gotten married and has had children. They find Lou bedridden and alone. After they catch up for a while, Jocelyn and Rhea push Lou's bed outside and stand by the poolside. Jocelyn thinks of Lou's son, Rolf, who is her age and remembers loving him. Jocelyn asks Lou about Rolf, forgetting that he committed suicide years earlier. Lou begins to weep. Rhea responds empathetically, thinking Jocelyn has said this despite Lou. Jocelyn is struck with anger and feels like pushing Lou's bed into the water. She tells Lou that he deserves to die. And then Lou then asks Rhea and Jocelyn to stand on either side of him and hold his hands. They take their hands and stand together, staring into the pool, just like old times. Scotty Hausman is the narrator of the next chapter, titled X's and O's, which happens nine years before The Gold Cure, which was our where we met Benny. 
Scotty is living in a reclusive life in New York City, working as a janitor and spending his free time fishing in the East River. He decides to visit his old friend, Benny. When he goes, he brings with him a dead bass that he caught while fishing. Scotty is stunned by the glamour of Benny's office and notes how his life has gone in a completely different direction than Benny's. As Scotty talks to Benny, Scotty realizes that they're no longer friends. Benny asks him about his ex-wife, Alice, who, appear, who appeared in the story, Ask Me If I Care. Benny had a crush on Alice, but Alice chose Scotty. Scotty realizes this is a point of insecurity for Benny. As Scotty leaves, Benny gives him a business card and tells him to get in touch if he ever has any new music to show him. Scotty just leaves the dead fish. The next day, Scotty gives the card to a young couple, one of whom is a musician. And now we're on to B, or side B, which the first story of that part is titled A to B. Our focus in that story is Benny's wife, Stephanie, before they got divorced. They were living in New York, but they moved to a wealthy community outside of New York City called Crandale. I think it's supposed to be like in Westchester County or something. They attempt to fit in, but Benny's racially profiled because he's Hispanic. Stephanie feels like an outsider because she has tattoos. But Stephanie was, uh, it does talk about how she was like a tennis savant when she was younger, and she begins playing tennis with a woman named Kathy. One day, Stephanie goes to the city to meet with the guitarist Bosco, for whom she does PR work. Her brother, Jules, who has just been released from prison, volunteers to go with her. Jules mentions that Stephanie and Benny seem jumpy, which makes Stephanie worry that Benny is cheating on her again. When they arrive at Bosco's apartment, Bosco tells Stephanie that he wants to go on a suicide tour. He's the former guitarist for the Conduits, uh, which was a which was a band that that kind of made Benny in a way. And he's become fat alcoholic and he's dying of cancer. So he wants to go out with a bang and die on stage. Stephanie thinks the idea is ludicrous, but Jules, her, her brother, wants to write a book about the suicide tour. Later that night, Benny comes home and while he showers, Stephanie finds a gold colored bobby pin on the floor. She realizes that it belongs to Kathy, with whom Benny is having an affair. Stephanie wanders downstairs and goes out to the garden, and she's surprised when Noreen, her reclusive neighbor, whispers to her from behind the fence. They share a brief interaction before Stephanie goes back inside. Next up is Selling the General. Our main character is Dolly Peel. Dolly is formerly known as Ladal. She was a famous PR expert, but she ruined her name after a light display at one of her parties malfunctioned and burned the famous attendees. She begins doing work trying to save the image of a military dictator called the General. She hires Kitty Jackson, who is an actress with a flagging reputation, and they travel to meet the General so Kitty can appear in a photograph of the dictator. Dolly also brings her daughter, Lulu, in hopes of repairing their relationship. When they meet the General, Dolly takes a photograph of Kitty's interaction with him, but things take a turn for the worse when Kitty begins asking the General about it the genocide he's been known to commit. The general's guards carry Kitty away into captivity. Dolly and Lulu leave immediately. Months later, the general's country has transitioned to democracy. Kitty is released and begins working on a new movie, and Dolly and Lulu move out of the city, and Dolly owns a successful sandwich shop. The following story, titled 40-Minute Lunch, Kitty Jackson opens up about love, fame, and Nixon appears in the novel as a magazine article written by Jules Jones, who's Stephanie's brother. The article was written prior to his release from prison, and the style of the article, including rants and footnotes, shows Jules becoming unhinged. As he talks with Kitty, he begins to conflate Kitty Jackson with his ex-girlfriend, who left him for a memoirist. 
Sensing his time with Kitty is almost up, Jules convinces her to go on a walk with him in Central Park. Once in the park, Jules pushes her down and tries to rape her. Kitty sprays him with pepper spray and stabs him in the leg with a Swiss Army knife. Later, Jules is convicted of attempted rape and sent to prison. Kitty sends him a letter apologizing for whatever role she had in his mental breakdown. Her letter creates a media sensation, and Kitty is pegged as the Marilyn Monroe of her generation. The next story... I mean, this just keeps going. The next story called Out of Body is told through the voice of Rob and includes Sasha. The story is set before Sasha begins working for Benny Salazar. She's still at NYU. Rob has recently attempted suicide and his friends, including Sasha, are worried about him. The two of them met after she asked him to pose as her fake boyfriend. She believes that her father has detectives watching her and she wants to appear as if she's dating a nice boy. He resents that Sasha seems interested in their mutual friend, whose name is Drew. So the three, to, three of them go to a Conduits concert. That's Bosco, the guitarist from earlier. As the band plays, Rob begins to fantasize about Drew, imagining that seeing Drew naked would give him a sense of relief. After the concert, Sasha goes to do a party with Benny Salazar, who she's just met. Rob and Drew end up going to the East River together. Rob tells Drew that Sasha was a hooker in Naples. He immediately regrets betraying her. Drew decides to swim in the river, and Rob follows Drew into the icy water, but he gets caught in a current and drowns. Next up comes the story titled Goodbye, My Love, and it's told from the perspective of Sasha's uncle, whose name is Ted Hollander. Sasha is in Naples, so this is prior to the story that we just read with Rob drowning. And her stepfather has flown Ted to Naples to look for her, but Ted, who is an art scholar, takes the opportunity to escape his wife and kids and view famous pieces of art on his brother's dime. As he walks to the city and views different pieces of art, he remembers Sasha as a child, describing her as lovely and bewitching. When he accidentally runs into her on the street, he doesn't know what to say. They schedule dinner and meet later that evening. As they eat, Sasha asks Ted about his family and his work. Ted's unhappy and struggles to connect to his wife and family. And he lies, telling Sasha he's not there for her. Later, they go to a club where Sasha convinces Ted to dance with her. She disappears on the dance floor, and Ted realizes that she has stolen his wallet. The next day, Ted finds where Sasha lives and waits outside her door until she gives him his wallet and lets him in. They watch the sunset, and Ted realizes how alone she is in this foreign country. The narrative then flashes forward, revealing that Sasha will have a family in the future. Ted will visit her, and they will reminisce about their time in Naples. The penultimate story, Great Rock and Roll Pauses, is told in the form of a PowerPoint created by Sasha's daughter, Allison. This is sometime in the 2020s, and Sasha has married Drew and started a family. Allison uses the slides to tell the story of the family's current situation. Allison's autistic brother, Lincoln, is interested in pauses in great rock and roll songs. He struggles to connect with his father, who is a doctor and is rarely home. One night, Drew returns from work in a bad mood. Drew becomes angry with Lincoln and yells at him. Sasha comes to Lincoln's defense, but Lincoln runs to his room. Allison and her father go for a walk in the desert. Drew admits that he has trouble connecting with his son. Allison suggests Drew help make him make graphs of the rock and roll pauses as a way to find connection. As they return to the house, Allison experiences tremendous anxiety, feeling as if she has traveled into the future and their home may be gone. She is relieved to find it is still there and goes to bed. And The chapter ends with slides of graphs created by Lincoln and Drew. 
And our final chapter is called Pure Language. It brings the novel full circle in a sense because it returns to Alex. He was Sasha's date in the first story. Now, the year here is sometime in the 2020s, just like the chapter we just read. And Alex has now taken a job with Benny as a social networking marketer. He's promoting a performance by Scotty Hausman, remember, of the fish, dead fish from the East River, who has had a comeback as a musician, and he plays music for toddlers. <laughs> that was so callous. Remember dead the fish, dead fish yes. from the Hudson River? Alex is reluctant to tell his wife, Rebecca, about his new job due to the stigma around the kind of marketing that he's doing. He uh, works with Lulu, that's Dolly's daughter, who appeared in Selling to General. On the day of the concert, the venue is packed and Alex feels proud. I believe one of the things he's doing in marketing is actually paying people to be there. Um, they have a word for it, but I can't remember what it is. Before, Isn't it a parrot yeah, or something? Yeah, or something like that. And uh, and the, the thing, this is a big thing for Benny as well, because in one of the stories prior to this, there's something where between um, the beginning of the novel and this point, Benny basically torpedoes his entire career by um, selling, uh, by serving like actual feces in the food of to um like the rec the executives at his company or something um so anyway uh before the concert scotty has a panic attack he refuses to play eventually lulu convinces scotty to get on stage and on stage scotty plays his songs for children but then he switches to more personal material everyone is wowed and the concert later becomes historic as alex and benny walk home after the show they pass the building where sasha used to live they ring the doorbell, but nobody answers. And just as they leave, a woman approaches. For a moment, they hope it's Sasha, but it's another woman. The end. Now, here's the question that we always start with. Mm -hmm. Did you like the book? <laughs> I had some difficulties getting into the book. Mm -hmm. I, Tom and I were in frequent communication. As I was reading it, he was ahead of me. I think he finished by the time I started. Which we usually aren't. We usually kind of keep it to ourselves until we have the podcast. Yes. I guess I just wondered if I was really by myself. Mm -hmm. am, am I really, should I not be struggling as much as I'm struggling? I was a bit concerned. And um, I, I didn't care for really any of the characters there are some exceptions mm -hmm. or the chapter so i i would say no uh one of the funniest things tom sent to me was in an email his like sign off said my sincerest apologies <laughs> period <laughs> which i cracked up at because it's just like oh gosh so i will say no however i do think it got better at the end and I agree with you choosing between Benny and Sasha of the, because those are certainly the two, I don't know, planets that yeah. uh, the characters Orbit. sort of yeah. orbit around. Sasha is, I think, like those connections are a bit more interesting and intriguing than the other one. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, I did not enjoy it. I'm with you. I really did not know what to make of this book. Um, when I realized that it was a lot like the things they carried in, in its structure, I was able to follow a little better. But there were times where I had to go back and figure out who the protagonist of the particular story I was dealing with was. Like, it, it, it was very hard to follow. 
in places. And I was starting to question my own intelligence. I'm like, should I be the smart person? Like, you know, it's just one of those things where like, am I stupid because I don't get what's going on here? But for the most part, you're right. Like there was like maybe one or two characters who I found intriguing or likable. Um, there were a couple of stories I did enjoy, uh, but for the most part, I was like, no, I didn't particularly enjoy the book. There were there was one chapter toward the end that I really did enjoy, so at least that got me through it. But yeah, there were there were portions of this book where I was like, it's not not getting it or, or something. It was just something was missing for me, and I thought I maybe I just thought it was going to be something different. But yeah, no, I, I didn't I didn't really like the book very much. Either. I mean, the first two chapters. The first one is a kleptomaniac, yeah, and. You know, if you're trying to get a sense of what the book is about, you're like, I, I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, it seems like she has little remorse. And then the second one, wasn't it Benny? And just like his fixation on whether he can become aroused yeah, yeah. or have an erection. It's like, what's going yeah. on? And why do I care about these people with these issues? Exactly. Yeah. And um, so like, so we have this nonlinear structure and. I'm going to I'll get it out of the way. I brought the things they carried like twice already. The things they carried's first story is the title story of the thing. And it has all or most of the characters or most of the platoon from Vietnam in some way or another, how some of them die and what some of them, what they carry, obviously, because it's the name of the, the title. And then it splinters off in different directions with different people in the same way here. But everybody kind of orbits around this one platoon that O'Brien, Tim O'Brien, the narrator of the, of the book was the fictitious Tim O'Brien was in that works in a way that this doesn't because those characters I think are likable and more sympathetic, even if they're really, really flawed here. I thought Sasha was a really intriguing character and I wanted to follow the thread of her life because I thought that was fascinating. If it was just focusing on her and we were jumping around all the place and having these different stories of her either if it was like through different people and stuff like that i think i would have liked it a lot more i think it was the fact that we kept going to people like benny that kept taking me out of it i was not interested in this guy he just seemed like a a middle-aged loser and it takes one to know one but or like or like lou this sleaze and stuff like that i get that's like part of the music industry and stuff like that but having I had no sympathy for him as a character. I actually didn't care for him as a character. So whenever he was the protagonist, I I was looking around him to see if there was something I was interested in because I really didn't care about his story. Whereas Sasha, I was like really intrigued by the whole thing with her and Naples and the whole kleptomania thing. And the, the, the thing with Drew and Rob, like what is this about this, this woman that makes her intriguing to other people? Um, like there's a mystery about her that was really, really interesting. And and maybe this is just, you know, I don't know, maybe because I I find that interesting as uh, that sort of person interesting anyway, in terms of novel characters as it is. Um, like, what do you think? Am I, am I off base here? Did you not like her at all too, or? No, I, I did. I did not care for her in the first chapter, mm-hmm. but I don't know necessarily that you are supposed to care for her. Um, it just seemed, I mean, that whole purse scenario and she didn't really feel much guilt at all, I think. And then she went back. She, I mean, she does say, I'm sorry, I have a problem I'm working on. And that woman 
is very kind to her and and uh, just says, oh, I misplaced my wallet. I found it. Mm-hmm. I think I started getting into Sasha with the Rob chapter. It was Rob, right? With, uh, where he drowns? Yes. Yes. Because you get to see who she, and you're seeing her through another character. Mm-hmm. But I felt like that chapter was really complex in all, like these two guys in particular that are surrounding Sasha and who Sasha is. But I felt um, it was a very emotional scene after Rob had attempted to kill himself. And she was in the hospital with mm-hmm. him and said something along the line of, like, we are survivors because you find out, like, she had also attempt multiple yeah. times actually um to kill herself i don't think we hear about it in that one though you can kind of intuit from that conversation but when her uncle goes to look for her he sees like the scars on her arms and then she's like swear to me that you'll never do that again and i so i think that that moment really endeared me to mm-hmm. her and um also hearing about you know what she got up to in naples and this betrayal that Rob, you know, so there's like more empathy going through there. And then you actually see what was going on in Naples and then her as a mother. So I would agree. I'm sorry that the author waited that long. Like, I guess side A was mostly Benny and side B was saw. I don't even think you could say that, but it wasn't side B longer than side A. It was. And I feel like I, I don't know why she focused so much on Benny unless she felt that that was like because he's a power character. Yeah. And so we can do that. We can do something with stereotypical washed up middle aged male because that is a very popular type of character in literary fiction. You know, there are writers who write that character all the time and maybe she was trying to do something with that. But. I don't know. I feel like she, if I feel like she wasted some potential that she had to make this better by not focusing enough on Sasha. Yeah. And I mean, the, the dichotomy obviously between Sasha and Benny is I feel like Sasha has a lot of redeeming characteristics, but Benny doesn't seem to at Mm -hmm. all. Like all of his characteristics seem very negative. Even on his deathbed, someone found out that one of his, like his son that we meet, over in the safari had killed himself and their relationship was really um fraught and so that was that was lou oh lou lou was the old lou was benny's mentor so 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 the purpose of having lou there i think is to see benny's origin story because lou mentored benny so it kind of clues you in as to why benny was the way he was as a record executive and stuff okay so but wasn't it Ben's Benny's son though that killed himself? No, Lou Lou's son who was on the safari was the one who killed himself. Oh, yeah. okay. the, the other kid joined the cult. Oh, and Lou is the one with the three wives and yes, yes. And, you see how the characters? Yeah, it, okay. It, it, oh, okay, this is why I'm saying it's like there's there's yes. too much going on. Like, and was, one of the there questions we had was, if I need somebody else to give me a flow chart, has the writer done a poor job? Yeah. And is that any different than like when you have these big historical novels and, you know, you flip through like maybe the first page and there's like a genealogical chart of, you know, a line of succession and stuff like that. I think they even have that in like George R.R. R. Martin novels and stuff like that. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, if I need a chart like that, 
is the writer failing in some way? And there's a difference between this, which was nearly 300 pages, yeah. I think, versus War and Peace. And mm-hmm. that's going through like generations. You have the, the Russian surname, so you need to keep track of it. Or, yeah, Game of Thrones, um, which is so many families and things. So this, I think, is overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you and I, because I was with you, I'm thinking to myself, why am I having so much difficulty with this novel? Mm -hmm. Like I am on side B and I'm seeing Sasha and I'm like, who is this Sasha? Go to the character chart. I'm like, oh my gosh, Sasha is the, you know, the person from the first chapter. So I don't know if she expected us, the author, to read this thing in one sitting so that we would remember everyone. But um, I feel like the, the chronology or lack thereof also is problematic mm-hmm. because at least with War and Peace and Game of Thrones, you there's a there's a timeline and he sticks to it. It doesn't hop yeah. around. Um, I think that in, I think it's interesting. Like I wouldn't necessarily say that this is badly written. I think that she did take an interesting idea. I just it just didn't land with me and i do think that she um perhaps asks too much of her readers like joe schmo off the street is not going to i think be able to do well with this particular novel yeah and i i will point out that when we talk about this little chart that's going to be in the show notes that's not in the book you know, where we talk about no we talk about uh, game of thrones we talk about those though even in um like the lord of the rings i has has charts and maps and things like that those are in the book. Like you flip open the page of the paperback yeah. and it's like, oh, here is King, this person and that person. This was something a fan created. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you right there. I think, I think she assumed we would care about the characters enough to really follow it in a way that you and I can follow the multitude of characters in say Chris Claremont's X-Men run. Right? Yeah. So like you read cuz I mean he wrote the X-Men for what 20 almost 20 years or more than 20 years I think. Or anyway, it doesn't matter. Um and there's like people on and off teams joining different teams and stuff and as you read through it you are able to keep track of where some of those people have been, were, and are, where they're going. Because in many cases, mm-hmm. even if you hate some of them, you do care about them. You're invested in them, right? Like, you know, um, like there's a, you know, and, and years would go by in that before things would have, like, before things would get resolved. You know, I'm thinking of like Storm losing her powers and gaining them back again, you know, like, but, but, and they were like, everybody was all over the place. Here, but that's because we cared about the characters and he took time to craft those characters and show us those characters. Um, now, granted, that was also a linear narrative. This is not. But even then, you could have done a nonlinear narrative with this. But we get two characters at the beginning and I'm like, what's to keep me going with Especially him, where it's like, oh yeah, he's just like, yeah, like with with Benny, I'm like, yeah, but with Sasha, oh, you know, Sasha, it's fairly interesting. I'm like, all right, I can see where this goes. Um, and then when she kind of goes off in a totally different direction, we see Benny younger, but 
as, as like a tertiary character in this story about Rhea, Jocelyn, and Lou, um, that's where I started to be like, okay, like what what's the deal here? Um, I thought that chapter, I thought. I was intrigued with all of the female characters in this novel and very few of the male characters. Maybe Uncle Ted in the Naples chapter. I thought that was pretty funny. But like every time we had a female protagonist, I was more invested. I don't know if that says something about Egan or if that's something about me. Well, I feel like, I mean, it might be both. both. I mean, honestly, the women did feel more complex Mm -hmm. and nuanced because the men just seemed power and sex driven. I mean, was it Lou who was getting a blowjob yes. in the middle yeah, of a concert? Like that. that all all of the people, all of the men seem to be affiliated with sex. Alex is like the one night stand at the very beginning. Benny's having an affair, even though he promised his wife he wasn't going to yeah. do that again. Lou, you got the blowjob. It's yeah. And, and I mean, Sasha, obviously, but she, there's a there. We, I think, um, have empathy for what she's doing and why she's doing it in Naples. Um, and then, you know, that one woman, who was it that felt uncomfortable with, with Lou's arm around Rhea, her? Rhea, was it? Because Rhea, Jocelyn yeah. was the girlfriend of Lou, the underage oh, okay. girlfriend. Rhea was her best friend. He had his arm around her while he was doing that. Yeah. The two of them go to visit him on his deathbed. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kitty, uh, is a weird character. Yeah. I mean, we might get into that. I, I, I don't know. Like, obviously I'm going to have empathy towards anyone who is, um, assaulted, mm-hmm. but I'm, I don't know why she does what she does with the general. And then also seems to be with him, maybe of her own consent question mark. Um, and Ladal, I think, that was a turn of events. Uh, and, and she, she's got kind of power too because of the, um, she's kind of dealing with these warlords, yeah. these people who have lost some stuff. But yeah, no, it seems like the women are honestly more complex. And, and with some of these female characters, the women, they all have, a bunch of them do have something where like you're, uh, they've hit a bottom. In some way or another, and a lot of the some of the male characters have as well, because Benny and Scotty both bottom out at one point or another. But I, again, I didn't find this interesting. But like Rhea and Jules are these um, teenagers who are who are punks, and they're like bad girls is probably the worst way to put it. They're they're rebellious girls against their parents. I think they're living in one of them is living in the suburbs, so it's this kind of like you know punk girl living in this like suburban house that's totally incongruous and everything and. And, and from that point, it's intriguing is because you always kind of like wonder when you, when you see people going through that phase, um, if it, even if it is just a phase or not a phase when they're in, when they're like hot in high school, what does happen 20, 25 years down the line? Like, you know, when, when they're an adult, what do they, what do they look like? What do they like? And stuff like that. So we see them much in the future and we see that. I thought that was a, that was again an interesting thread to pull at. Um, We'll get to Kitty. We'll get to we can get to Kitty in a minute. Um, Ladal, I found that fascinating uh, because Kitty, the party is like they have this. It's like oil in these light fixtures or something, and they all start to um, 
because of the way it's set up that the light fixtures all actually melt and spill out onto the thing. So people actually end up pretty badly burned. Mm-hmm. Um, but in an, in a, I, and her career is ruined, but in an ironic way, it becomes this landmark party that people like claim that they were at. So yeah. it, like that was the price. She never really regained her reputation, but at the same time, like, is ironically responsible for this really, really cool thing that she sacrificed her career for. And that's why she's pursuing this African dictator angle because she really just needs, needs the money and such because she's like desperate for it. Um, so again, there's little bits and pieces that make some of these characters pretty, pretty intriguing. What did you make of, we have two stories that, where Kitty is, is a big, big character. And mm-hmm. and I'm taking that she's supposed to be an ingenue of an actress when Jules is interviewing her. Like, she's the up-and-coming, young, like, your, like at one time, um, <sighs> Gwyneth Paltrow back in, when she was first starting out, or, or Cameron Diaz, or... Margot Robbie back when she was like when, when some of these were Anne Hathaway back, like when they were first starting and they were first coming into that, that, yeah. that age of Kate Hudson at one point was an on, you know, like that, that age of this, that early 20 something model slash actress slash beauty, you know, cover of Vogue, cover of Cosmo in rom-coms like that actress. And then th- he assaults her at this, after this interview, he goes to jail it, it kind of messes her up. For, I mean, for obvious reasons, right? But it messes her up quite a bit too. And I was wondering if that starts her down this road to where she will kind of willingly go and live with this African dictator for a while because there's just something about her career has been made her damaged goods because of all of this, or or what? Did she also gain some? Um more notoriety because of it? I believe so, yeah. So I don't know if she feels like any press is good press. Like, mm-hmm. perhaps her career had stagnated, and then she realizes that she needs to <laughs> jumpstart it somehow. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, they're in a dangerous situation. Even Dolly turns to her and is like, if you stop, if you don't stop talking, we're, we're both going to die. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, she's just like carted away. Who even knows? Is it the Stockholm syndrome? I don't know. But then, yeah, she's just seen on the arm of this dictator at different places. So I, I would imagine that it, I, I think being assaulted certainly any, that the trauma, I think that that probably did do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Hollywood and all of that also probably broke something inside of her. Um, yeah. What do you think about Yeah, I think there is a criticism of how young women are treated in and around Hollywood and in and by the press here. And I, I tend to ask this when we see scenes like this in the books because you know I'm I, I don't like seeing it in fiction unless I feel that it is absolutely necessary um to the plot and I think nine times out of ten is not. Jules's sexual assault of her Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah, so this was a, an email correspondence that Tom and I also had because we find out that Kitty 
was assaulted by Jules in is it Sasha is his sister? Um yes, um because they are doing going back through my Is she the PR so, person? Sorry. Um I believe so. Sorry, I'm going back through my synopsis to find the actual That's okay. Uh or if you have your Stephanie. Up. Stephanie, Stephanie who, okay. is, who is Benny's ex-wife. Oh, okay. because it's yeah. it's in okay. the story where Stephanie comes home and he realizes she realizes that Benny's been sleeping with Kathy. Oh, right. I actually yes. like that yes. story because yeah. I thought the whole like punk rock chick trying to fit into the country club set in Westchester and how conflicted she is with like, why do I want to yeah. do this yet? I enjoy this, and, but I shouldn't enjoy this and all this stuff. I thought in one short story that, that Egan built a pretty complicated character there. And I actually did like that as a story. Yeah. She couldn't fit inside She'd, or within yeah. the Stepford yeah. mold. So we find out because Stephanie is Jules sister mm-hmm. about this assault and that he is he's just out of jail at the time, Rikers, I think it was. And so I thought that was going to be the end all and be all. So I'm looking at this Jules character. I see the conflict that kind of Stephanie has of being a sibling to him and um, also reconciling with what yeah. he did. And then I don't know how many pages pass. But then we have that. I would consider that a very bizarre chapter. Like the newspaper, yeah. I don't even know if it was an actual newspaper article. Or he was just writing in his mind. He was losing it. Um, but then there were these footnotes that are very like philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> but it actually goes into detail of the assault. And so I had emailed Tom. I was like, "Why did we need that? Why couldn't we have just stayed?" I, d- I don't think we needed it at all. I think knowing that he had assaulted her was I was going to say fine. I think that was enough. That was sufficient. Um, I don't know. I guess Egan did it to herself by having a chapter in his point mm-hmm. of view. But there could have been there could have been something, you know, like a go around, like perhaps end it before that happened. And then we're back in the present. He's in Rikers and all of that stuff. So I don't know that it was necessary yeah, because the way the story the novel progresses starting with that story from benny his wife stephanie it's the it's a to b the first part of part b um where we first meet jules this story right after that is the is kitty with the african dictator and okay. then it's jules's magazine story that yeah we don't know if this is an actual magazine story or or his kind of writing this account in his mind or writing it as a magazine story whether or not it'll actually be published but his it's almost like his confession of of what he did and it is really really detailed yeah that almost makes it yeah. worse in that order. I don't know if because I read 50 at a time, so I don't know if I read them back mm. to back. But it makes it worse because you have Kitty. You only know a bit about Kitty. And then all of a sudden you have Kitty taken by this dictator. And then you have like the assault. And so now you're wondering, oh, is Kitty being also assaulted by this dictator? Um, so that order actually makes it worse. But I, yeah, I just don't, I stand by my, that we didn't need to. to yeah. Apparently, Cause apparently like at the end of the, at uh, the end of the chapter, she sends him a letter apologizing for this is from the synopsis apologizing for what. Oh my gosh. I forgot and, about and then, that. And that actually causes a media sensation. So 
she becomes a celebrity again because because of this. It's a very strange turn of events. Now, whether or not we needed to go into the amount of detail that we do with the assault, I think she probably could cut have cut a decent part of that out, and we would have still gotten what we needed out of this chapter. I think mm-hmm. she's also experimenting with form, and here it doesn't work. Um, whereas later on in the book, there's another complete experimentation with form that I think did work. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what's going on here. But yeah, we never see them again after this. Stephanie or Jules or Kitty uh, or Jules? Kitty or Jules. I mean, I don't even think we really see Stephanie either. So. That's unfortunate. Too. Doesn't Kitty say, like, I'm sorry for what part I played in your breakdown? Yes. That's, isn't that crazy? It's very, very strange. And I, I guess if we wanted to go into it on a deeper level, we could talk about <sighs> misogyny and gender roles and, and sexual assault yeah. and, and things like that. I just. Unfortunately, leaning into the I must have done something. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and the our culture saying that, well, you must have done yeah, something to have them yeah, break down yeah. like that. Like, what, were, yeah. what did you do? What, did, what were you wearing? Like, uh, you know, those types of questions. Yeah. And it's. So while I don't like it, I guess it's like maybe it's good that Egan is pointing out that particular mm-hmm. like she's criticizing it in yeah. that way. But yeah. Yeah. Again, I I'm kind of with you. I can see what she's doing. It doesn't always land for me. Yeah. I think and I think that's my frustration. I don't. But here's the thing. Like there have been novels that neither of us particularly liked or enjoyed or we enjoyed bits and pieces of before. Like the Latinist is probably the most recent mm. one where we actually had a similar thing where the female, where the woman in the novel was more intriguing than the man. Yeah. The man was a character who I just despised <laughs> or we had like an extremely loud and uncomfortably close, which like I remember I was getting just like angry at this book. I don't feel that way toward this. I'm kind of ambivalent, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, I read it. I can pass it on. I, I don't have any sort of like visceral reaction to it. I just, I see, I see what she's going for in places. She doesn't land it and stuff like that, but she does in others. So there's, um, because I think she gives Sasha and Benny as happy of an ending as she can give either of them. Because Sasha seems to be her 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 family's complicated at the end, but she seems to be in a good place, and Benny has gone on sort of a redemption arc that you know I honestly didn't care, but but it, he is that by the end he's kind of back, but he's back in his own terms, and I think that was his thing. Like he had sold out the company, he'd sold the record company that he owned to a larger corporation, but was still kept on as running the record company. So he essentially sold out, you know, served literal crap to everybody, got fired, went down in flames. And now this is him and Scotty making their big comeback on their own terms. So there's your redemption and your happy ending for Benny. Um, and Sasha has finally found some stability or something. Um, and it's way more complicated than that, but it, it seems like these two chapters happen completely separate from one another. Sasha and Benny aren't in each other's lives 10, 15 years down the road. But we have this second to last, Sasha's last chapter is this PowerPoint. 
and I know this gets a lot of attention when people start reviewing the book because I went through Goodreads to see some some reviews and things. That pe- some people were like, what is it with this PowerPoint chapter? I think we both really liked that chapter. Yes. Uh, again, in an email yeah. correspondence, <laughs> right before I started it, I, you know, I turned the page and I'm like, now apparently I'm about to read a PowerPoint. <laughs> and then after I finished it, because I think it is the longest yeah. chapter because of all the slides, I said, well, I think that was the best chapter of the book. I think because it is through the point of view of a child. Mm-hmm. And the child who recognizes that her mother is complex and has a history and wants to know what that history is, um, that her father has a, ha, is having a tough time and, and loves her brother deeply and, you know, child, childlike innocence can peer through and it's probably like the most honest representation of like these people. And, uh, through that, I think, um, just like I feel like I learned the most about any character in that chapter. Yeah. Even though it was the first time that we had encountered the two kids. It was like, well, I know more about Sasha. I know more about Drew. Yeah, I it was very successful. It was very interesting format. I think it was very ballsy uh, to attempt this. And I, I think that it, it, it stuck. And like I said, I, I think that it delivers on giving you information and helping you process to like, what is this complicated family situation? And who is Sasha now at this point in her life? Yeah. And, and Allison, who is the girl who wrote, who, you know, who, who did the PowerPoint, the daughter, is a really empathetic character and, mm-hmm. and that curiosity and, and wanting to know more. It, I, I agree with everything you said there. It was, and it, not only that, it like, it was like a nice break in a way that the jewels magazine story was not, it was a nice break. From oh the my book, God. Right. Yeah. And, yep. and it was, it was intriguing kind of seeing that unconventional story, seeing it from the point of view of a kid, her having a lot of empathy and, and, really supporting her brother too, mm-hmm. who, um, and, and his, the brother bring it back to music with the pauses in between things and stuff. And, and the way it comes together at the end is sweet without being saccharine too. And, and her acknowledging and seeing and drawing out all the complexities of, of her parents and seeing them for who see, I think that she sees their humanity as well in a way that I think you always see your, you're obviously you always see your parents humanity in some way, but she sees her parents more as human and less as parents or more as people less as parents by the end of the story. And, um, that I felt was, uh, was really nice. And I, I felt it was a really sincere piece of writing that I really, really enjoyed. Um, so on its own, again, it's one of the stories from this book that it's on its own. It's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it only helps because, of course, you're thinking about Sasha's history, mm-hmm. not only in Naples, but, you know, even, you know, uh, several attempts on her life. You wonder, oh, does she wear long sleeves all yeah. the day? You know, you're kind of thinking these these small things. Does Drew know? Or, sorry, has Drew told Sasha that he knows? Because they reconnected. They were dating when mm-hmm. Rob died. 
And then they reconnected like years later um, through Facebook yeah. or something like that. So this is, yeah. So I don't know if he's like carrying that. Um, actually, one of the best lines in that Rob chapter was after he had said that um, Rob said something along the lines of, oh, I think Drew said you're an asshole and Rob said you're the last to know. And Drew said, no, Sasha is. Hmm. And I thought, what? first of all, I read that a couple of times. I'm like, does that mean he's calling Sasha an asshole? But then I realized, no, Sasha's the last one to know like that Rob's an asshole. But I'm sorry, you're going to have to bleep all those times that I said that. Um, <laughs> because of what he had did, which I thought was uh, very powerful. But I don't know if like he's carrying that in there. So, so this is a moment also where like previous details of those stories come through. And you're, that was the first time I actually cared about considering them. Um, all because of this PowerPoint chapter, but yeah, it it was it was very successful, and yeah, the father has trouble connecting with his son. He doesn't understand the silence business, and at one point, Allison even said she has a question about silences, and Drew says like, "Oh no, not you too," and um, but the whole graph it connects because the son who is what's the son's name? Um, um I want to say Lincoln. Hmm. Oh, I think you're right. Lincoln. Lincoln, yeah. Wants to make a graph, and no one really knows necessarily how to do that. But Drew says, like, I, you know, I could potentially try to do that. Um, and I think Allison pushes him on, you know, are you really going to? And he said, well, if I said that I did that, I will do. And so having those graphs at the end, you realize that there's a connection made between the, the father and the son where it wasn't. But even the silence of them walking out in the desert, I thought was really powerful. And even that fear that, you know, she gets wrapped up in is really interesting. Yeah, there's and it's it's all in a PowerPoint. Yeah. My gosh, you know, little figures connecting. I'm like to flipping each through other. it right now. <laughs> sure. Was. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And the reason why she does it just to give like, um, I don't know if you said this in your synopsis or not, because even uh, Sasha had asked like, why don't you write in a journal like a normal? Yeah. You know, she's like, this is just how this is just how she journals is with the PowerPoint, but. It's it is very interesting, yeah. So uh, shame on me for judging the PowerPoint by <laughs> the the cover, but it it certainly was the the best one in the whole yeah, book. This is how I journal bit I like because there's um because there's all sorts of ways of journaling. People sketch journal, you know, um, sometimes, or they actually yeah. will do flowcharty type of things. They don't necessarily feel that they are comfortable or that's just not how they, uh, when they sit down to journal, that's not how the things come out in terms of like paragraphs of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I hesitate to say, use the word neurodiverse because I think anybody, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to categorize the type of person who would do that. Anybody would want to do it. I've seen people take notes and they do sketch notes at meetings. Whereas I like do flow charty things and then doodle in the, in the margins. Um, this, yeah, so I like the fact that, like, here she just has a different way of thinking and working things out. And then the there's just, I love the the charts at the end, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that, where we have all these, uh, we have the songs, all of which are, in many cases, um, well-known songs. So if you're familiar with them, you can kind of picture them and stuff. And, and it's a sweet father-son moment that, at the beginning of the story wasn't there because he was struggling to communicate with his son. 
And, um, you know, his daughter is like, here, I can help you. And, and I think I, I like the fact that the, I like the fact that the last few slides of the PowerPoint are just the charts presented without context. It's just here are the charts. And I like that too, because yeah. you, you spend some time looking at them and it's, it's like, oh, that's really, really cool. So yeah, I actually did like this gimmick. Um, and I thought it was a really, really cool way to do a story. And then we have the last chapter, which is this, like, it's a strange chapter. The name of the roommate of theirs or friend of theirs at NYU is named Bix. And I believe he is one of the main characters in the sequel to this because I think he becomes like a social networking networking wizard. Because he kind of has the idea back in the earlier 90s or whatever at the NYU dorm of this is going to be big like electronic communication and such like that. But there's this whole thing where I think she's trying to extrapolate what was then texting language, social media as it existed them out 10 years because it's supposed to take place around like our present day right now. Um, so there's different like weird texting language and shorthand, almost like new speak type of things. Oh, and yeah. Is this the one where he's, like, flirting with Yeah, the yeah. It's the very last story. Oh, I guess it's with Lulu. It's the very least. Yeah, he's flirting with Lulu. It's the very, very last story of the novel. Um, and, and all of the uh, texting is all of this, like, it's almost indecipherable in places and stuff like that. So it's supposed to be quasi-futuristic, but it's not like, you know, all of a sudden we have flying cars and stuff. But it's, like, also that, like, all inter- all the entertainment and stuff is so artificial that this this moment that they have or everything's so manufactured this moment this this becomes an important concert because scotty goes off the script and provides something that's impromptu and genuine so i think she's i think she's getting at the punk ethos in here the idea that that punk came out of the desire to stop with the giant to, to push back against what was then rock and pop which was like you know this long bloated stadium rock and you know corporate rock and roll and stuff like that so like is is i think she's kind of trying to recapture it at the end and saying that like you know here's the genuine thing and these guys were punks and they're trying to get that back or whatever is punk music would you consider anti-establishment? I think that, that was the that was the idea at least at the very beginning of its creation back in the seventies. So is Benny? Would you consider Benny a sellout? I think he had. That's the yeah, I was saying earlier. I think he did sell out, and I think his arc is that he goes from sellout to redeeming himself because he creates. He starts to become kind of reached to the level of management or executive or whatever, but he's doing it on his own terms. When he does it, mm-hmm. as opposed to the way he was when we meet him at the beginning of the uh, novel, where he had sold out because he had literally okay. sold his company to like a mega me- a media mega corporation, and they kept mm-hmm. him on as the head of the record label, but he, he we didn't own the record label anymore. And I think at the end we're supposed to believe that he he has complete he had completely torpedoed his own career. Because he basically served them like crap pies at a at a meeting or whatever, or so he did something. He he did <laughs> something like involving. He does sound like the help, 
but he did something involving yeah. feces and people like it, it was the sort of legend that made him again damaged goods because there was just like you know what did this guy do although scotty and a couple other people were like yeah fight the power man and then he hooks up with <laughs> scotty and they're like we're gonna do this on our own just like we always intended and this is this coming to fruition so i think we're supposed to believe at the end of the novel that he he and scotty have redeemed everything because they did this on their own as opposed mm-hmm. to taking off when Scotty and Benny met nine years earlier in that dead fish meeting, you know? So that wasn't the right yeah. time then. Cause he, cause Benny was still kind of, and maybe his impotence is a symbol of him selling out. I don't know. We could get into all the maleness of this or what she thinks is the maleness of this. But, um, but I think that, yeah, this is a redemption arc for him. And on some level I get it, but I didn't really care enough about Benny to really care that he got redeemed at the end. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I was also trying to figure out if this guy was going to have an affair with Lulu. I think he was flirting with her, but he is married. I think he's got a girlfriend or he's married or something. Yeah, you know, with the, the kid. kid. And Because um, they were discussing about not letting the child have a cell phone. Not only that, um, she doesn't know that he has the job. Like yeah, he's hiding yeah. the job for like she doesn't know what he does, and and he, she doesn't know that he set helped set up this entire operation and stuff like so he keeps that under his secret, um and he's kind of this almost like the next generation of this progression from Lou to Benny to this guy named Alex it, it because at the end they're both thinking about Sasha, and that girl you know it's and that. That was a genuine moment at the end, though. Of them looking. Yeah, or they, they like walked by her apartment building. Like, I remember, and, and they had that connection. And because you will sometimes just get kind of a, a, a memory of an, of an, of an old flame pops into your head, right? Or somebody you once met or whatever. And you know, and maybe you're where they, used to live or where they were or you're in your and and you you half expect it's on, on on one side of you is like you're half expecting you're hoping you might run into them but the more rational side of you is like no they're is it, what's the probability of you actually running into them or something and um yeah. i enjoyed that little moment for what it was because that that struck me as a very realistic thing of the sort of nostalgia of it all and and the kind of hope you still cling to that there's something that was still there, even though you know that no, the time has passed. So, did we ever figure out what that note in his wallet meant or where it came from? I don't from? know. I don't think so. Okay. I th- because if it would have happened, it would have happened in that final yeah. chapter because that's the only other time we have that guy. But I just wondered. I felt like it was such a detail. Yeah. But um, well, it was a nice little ring composition. Alex is in the beginning. Alex is in the end. Sasha's in the beginning. Sasha's mm-hmm. in the end. Yeah, and I'm 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 flipping through the uh, this chapter, and I'm not really seeing it. Um, although, although he Benny had Benny had served his corporate controllers a boardroom lunch of cow pies oh. in the in the catering trays. So that was the thing. No, I don't think it was. And um, I think by the time I hit the last chapter, I was ready to finish the book. So I didn't pay as much attention to it as I probably should. So 
Um, before we get to our discussion of uh, whether or not you know the required reading and everything, I think we know what our answer for that is. Uh, what what's the theme of this novel? To be all English teachery, like what's our message here? What's the point of this? Well, I guess each of the characters we do see them younger and then them older. So I don't know if it's if it is a look in growing up, uh, what it says about youth and that youth um, maybe we have different ideals and that there's more freedom in the youth. But then <laughs> when you are older, um, and I, you know what, I really don't know. I really don't. Know. <laughs> I, I think there's. She might be commenting a little bit on middle age and what we use, what we lose as we grow, and how things get more complicated. Um, I think she's tapping into that idea of selling out and what that might mean. I don't get the whole thing about the digital world and growing up and stuff. That just that passed me by. But um, but yeah, I think there's just some themes about your thirties, your forties and, and that sort of thing. And, and how maybe how things, everything is connected in some way or another, that there's little threads of, of how we flit in each out, out of each other's lives. Um, but I, again, I don't know if it lands. Do you think relationships between men and women in different situations. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's definitely some comment on, on, on sex and gender in here. Um, but again, like I could see how this could get, how this could get opted for a TV series, because I think it, if you stretch this out, you could do this as an episodic television series because you have so many characters coming in and out. And, um, you know, like I could see how that would work. Like I mentioned, I mentioned the X-Men earlier as a comic book and I could see how this works in the comic book land because of the prolonged aspect of telling the story over a long period of time to shove what she's doing here into like 300 pages of a novel. It's ambitious. I don't think she's 100% successful. So. Yeah. So the last question before the last question, the penultimate question, if you will, how the hell did this win a Pulitzer? Yeah, that is the question. And so um, I think maybe you had brought it up, maybe about how did this win a Pulitzer? And then I started Googling what are the criteria to win a Pulitzer, and there really mm -hmm. are none. It's just it has to show some sort of yeah. excellence. I'm looking at the other uh, books that were nominated. I didn't know uh, the other two. I was looking at what else came out in 2011. I was looking at the board members. Uh, we did find out that you or someone else can submit yourself. So <laughs> Egan, our friend Egan, could have More than been likely her publisher. the one to submit herself. Yes. Um, I was shocked to see that Stephen King's novel about the JFK assassination, can't rem uh, remember the title, also came out in 2011. Yeah, so I'm just, I guess I'm, I would, I've heard really I good things about that. I think this beat out a Colson Whitehead novel. Yeah. Um, 
I think because it's so ballsy in its approach and the intertwining narratives, because even you were like compelled by the book jacket mm-hmm. summary. So I think that and, and, uh, that it is, I would say it's pretty unique. Um, I guess that that's how it, how it won. But I don't know. You know, I'm looking at these people on the board, you know, New York Times yeah, and right. Washington Post, all of that stuff. And so I guess maybe they ju- they're they just more erudite than we I, are. <laughs> I looked at the, I asked myself, how the hell did this one a Pulitzer? And then as I was reading it, and I was like, of course this won a Pulitzer. Because um, I thought of this would be – this would have been chosen in one of my contemporary literature classes in college – by one of my professors who was uh, uh, had some really good stuff that he sent our way. Um, he's the reason why I, why I will read the obituaries every once in a while because he says somebody interesting always dies and it's always interesting to read like long form obituaries of people. Um, but he was also a pretentious jackass. And this mm-hmm. would be the type of book he would throw our way because this is the new thing and it's also connecting to the college youths. Um, and I was like, of course this, I would have been assigned this in a college, uh, upper level college or creative writing or creative writing or lit or contemporary lit class. Um, because it, it speaks to that, that type of, uh, that type of, uh, environment or something like that. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm, Damning it with faint praise, I guess you could say. I'm just like, eh. So I won't be picking up the sequel. Yeah, I guess I just wonder what her audience was supposed to be. I just think it was mainstream literary fiction. But it also actually shows you how much um, how much things have changed in 13 years. Because this was published in 2010. Mm-hmm. And what you see when you walk into Barnes and Noble, you wave hi to Don and you walk in, <laughs> but what you would see on the, on the shelves and what you would see out front, um, some stuff hasn't changed. There's still that political punditry crap, right? You know, your, your, or your current event stuff. And there's still the tables of like, you know, summer reads for, for English class and that sort of thing. But, when I walk into Barnes and Noble and I see the stuff that they want me to check out, like right away, the new stuff, I see more genre work. So I see more mystery. I see more crime. I see more science fiction, some horror here and there. Um, rather than straight up lit fiction, I see, you know, even as a woman, I see more women authors. I see more authors of color and I see more stories that, are a varying now there are some stories that are just basically carbon copies of the same you know type of story and that that's time of memorial with publishing right you know like you one novel becomes popular and there's 50 copycats but i see a more variety of diversity of voices and stuff like that that i think if this were published in 2023 i don't think it would win a pulitzer because i think there's better stuff out there yeah and it's a lot of like white people problems yes, it is it is i didn't even know that benny was hispanic salazar being his last name but they didn't really talk that's the other thing they t- the only time she brings up his ethnicity is in the context of the country club they're joining otherwise it's really never yeah, that dinner up. party yeah 
And I was super confused. I read that scene like five different times because they were talking about like Muslims mm-hmm. or or Al Qaeda or something. And they like look over at Benny. I'm like, why are they? Because looking he's at brown. Benny? I don't understand what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Now yeah. I understand. So yeah, she yeah. she's again she she didn't really have, or maybe it was something you know. Again, it was. Uh, you don't get enough of these characters, especially the male characters who tend to be a little bit more one dimensional to, to really, uh, to really understand, like to really see that. So, so I'm not going to, I'm going to say it's not required reading. And what about you? I would agree. Yeah. So, but, um, we hope that we entertained you (laughs) for the last hour and a half or so that we've uh, we've been on air here and um you know if, if you want to give this a try go ahead but yeah you don't think either of us would recommend yeah. it can sure. i ask you a question why do you think she did the third person versus first person did you ever come up with any idea of why you would do that i don't know because i, I because i've because like the journal and the um Newspaper article, I think, fit yeah. first person, but I didn't understand in terms of just like the narrative why sometimes it was. I don't know. I noticed that various stories of this were published separately in magazines, and now she claims it's like a connecting novel. I wonder that in the process of putting this novel together, she actually did have a few stories that she put together, and she wrote the others. You know, I, I would, I, I don't know, and that's another thing that I don't know if it works entirely. Because um, I've read novels with multiple narrators that are first person, yeah. and they've gone mm-hmm. back and forth, and it's been the you know I, I've read a few of those novels, and those have worked. I think the consistent the consistent narrative point of view is, yeah. is what makes it work, but yeah, here it doesn't. Um, yeah, I would agree, especially you're going in understanding that you're going to be switching, and often the yeah I've read like several romance yeah. novels like that um but it usually like says who mm-hmm. the person is the issue with the first person is you want to you do not find out who the person is speaking until several pages in because that the entire time i'm so yeah. distracted like maybe i'm a bad reader but i'm so distracted trying to figure out who this is by saying i that i'm just trying to get to someone speaking yeah. to them and it takes a long time and i don't know that that's no, this good. Is the same thing because i've read third person point of view novels that have that are limited, but they are from different, the, the point of view of different people. And, um, it's, uh, it works because you, you quickly into the said chapter, you know, who this is focusing on. And, and that's mm-hmm. the thing that I did, but I did the same exact thing you did. I'd be like seven or eight pages into a chapter. I'm like, who is this? And I'd have to go back and look. And, or figure it out, like go back and like who, and, and then it's like, I figure out who's speaking, like, who is this again? And then I have to remember who they are, you know? So again, it's just like, you know, you're doing, she's making you do too much work. And I know that sounds stupid. <laughs> it makes me sound stupid. But she is. So. Well, I don't know. Well, how much work do you think you need to do when you're reading? Um, I mean, you should you do a little because you, you imagine these characters, you make predictions mm-hmm. in your head, you do wonder about some of their backstory at the you know at the moment, you wonder about where other characters were and some of the relationships with. But I feel that you're doing that as you're along for the ride, 
Yeah. And you can see the road ahead of you, even if the narrative jumps around in the timeline in time, you can still pick up the threads here. It's kind of a mess and she's, she is requiring you to put all the threads together while she just throws all the story at you. And I think, you know, I think that is asking a little too much of your audience. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Yeah, I don't know that. Again, I just don't think Joe Schmo off the street is going to be yeah, reading this. No, I don't think so. Or, you know, farewell. I mean, honestly, I feel like Game of Thrones, I can follow that back. War and Peace, I could follow that back. This, this might get, if this, this ever gets greenlit fully and gets produced, this might get a little bit of a bump. Um, I could yeah, see probably. it kind of. If because of the fact that there's another rock and roll book that's been popular over the last year that I actually am interested in reading and I've heard very good things about called uh, it's called oh, Daisy no. Jones and the Six. Oh, it's, it's on, Amazon, on the Amazon. So I'm like, oh well, if Netflix yeah. might actually, yeah, might, Netflix might put this fast track this when they can to get it out because yeah. I think that's been a pretty popular it's a popular book and I think it's been a pretty popular um, show. So I can see how this, I mean, I don't know if this is, this compares to Daisy Jones and the Six, but I could see in the marketing aspect of it, how it would, um, because like, oh, here, yeah. girl, you got one girl character and you got music and you let's, let's kind of position it this way. So, um, but I do want to read Daisy I Jones guess, and the Six. Yeah. It's on my, it's, if it's not on my Goodreads to read oh, list, boy. it's on my mental to read list. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess visually it might help because you'll be keeping track mm -hmm. of the characters that as it true. goes through everything. I think about uh, the Time Traveler's Wife, which is a bit of a mind trip. Um, and I haven't seen the new show, but I did see the movie. And you could kind of keep track with like hairstyles and um, yeah. and what the is what the actors look like at that point in time. Rachel but. McAdams, okay. Yes, and Eric Bana originally, and then yeah, okay. they did the show. But anyways, yeah. So I guess, well, I guess we'll see. I don't know that I'm that. I'd be interested. Yeah, how do you adapt a PowerPoint into a, you know? It's kind of crazy. But yeah, yeah, I think like you, I probably wouldn't necessarily waste yeah. my time watching it. But Maybe with voiceovers and um, <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, next episode is episode 80. So we don't have a book. But we will be doing one of our tangent specials, and this time we're going to be very topical because we have decided to talk mm -hmm. about banned and challenged books, which you, uh, yeah. if you've been following the news this year, especially in the realm of education, uh, there has been mm -hmm. a lot of talk about banning books from certain curricula in high school libraries and public libraries and high schools and et cetera, et cetera. Many of those books are featuring LGBTQIA plus characters. And that's been a pretty big focus of challenges uh, by the, um, as the ALA tracks them uh, for the last few years. So we'll be talking about like, what does it mean if a book is banned and or challenged? Who's bringing these? Who has brought them historically? Um, what are some of the books that are on the on the hot seat at the moment? Um, 
what have we read? What have we not read? You know, what are we interested in reading? What our opinions are? Where do we see this affecting our particular roles as teachers? Or um, what do we see? How do we see this playing out in the future? So that's going to be our discussion for episode 80. And then in, for episode 81, Stella's going to have a pick. So you'll clap, but you'll have to find out what that is at the end of next episode. So until then, we don't have any feedback this time around. So please send us feedback and let us know what you thought of this or any of the other books that we've uh, been covering. Uh, you can email us, get on the Twitter comments on the blog and on the Facebook. Uh, and as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Frankly, I don't recommend swimming in the Hudson River. I think it was the East River, which is even worse. Yeah, I think it's some garbage. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, how, how why, you, why that would happen. How you come out of that river without like half your skin peeling off. Yeah, I don't know. And they took their clothes off. Yeah, skinny dipping in the East River is not something I don't think anybody would recommend. So No. And that bass must have smelled not. foul. Like worse than your average dead fish. Dead <laughs> fish so don't weird. smell good. That must have He kept telling her he's like telling the receptionist it's a fish. I'm like, What's what what's your damage, Scotty? Too much cocaine way back when a whole drug. <laughs> good night. Uh. Goodbye, our sincerest yes, apologies. Our sincerest apologies. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two That's two If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next